everybody. Welcome to the Travel Tales Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Siegel, with the last show of 2013. Wow! The year has flown by, and it's been a great year travel-wise for me. Let's see if I'm going to retrace the last year or so. Starting last December, I went to Panama. Uh, I took a cruise for the first time in, I don't know, almost... 25 years, uh, the rock boat, which wasn't your normal cruise, but it was great, followed by Roatan, Honduras for some scuba diving. Awesome. My first press trip I took as a travel journalist, I went to Biloxi and the Gulf Coast for Mardi Gras. That was a great time. Portland in April for the Bridgetown Comedy Festival, my first trip ever to Portland, Oregon, and what a great city that is. Uh, Then I went to Nashville for some other work. Been there many times before, but still had an awesome time for the Country Music Fan Fest, working that. Followed by a wedding in New England for my cousin's wedding. Took some time off, knocked off three of the last final five states I hadn't been to. I went to Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, all in about four days, and it was great. Highlights of that trip, I would have to say, would be Portland, Maine, Burlington, Vermont, I liked a lot. The White Mountains, beautiful. Lake Champlain, awesome. Pretty much all of Vermont is really gorgeous. And uh, Maine, wow, what great country. It reminded me of Minnesota, but with lobster and different accents. (laughs) But uh, that was in June, July. And let's see, where did I go from there? Oh, who could forget? Croatia. Went back to Croatia this time, did the northern part and some other parts I didn't see the first time I went. Got to see a lot of Zagreb. Uh, the Istrian Peninsula, Pog Island, and uh, ran into some old friends there, saw some new friends. Likewise, on my way back, I stopped in one of my favorite cities in the world, which is, of course, London. Got to see some old friends there, did a few days up in Nottingham, never been there before. And then in September, a four-day rafting trip in the Grand Canyon. Had an awesome time doing that. And followed it up with a little San Francisco weekend trip for my birthday in October, What a great city. Every time I go there, I just go, man, this place is awesome. Beautiful. Gorgeous. And October, if you're thinking of ever going, perfect time of year to go to San Francisco. The weather, perfect. And I rounded out the year with a Thanksgiving trip to Florida to see the family. Pretty good year. Saw a lot of old friends, made a lot of new friends, and that's pretty much what travel is all about. I'm very fortunate to have the ability to not only travel... Uh, but to meet people and to maintain contacts around the world. It's been amazing. And not only the people I've met around the world, uh, some of the guests we've had in here i never really met before and made a lot of new friends doing that, and that's really cool. For those of you who have been listening all year, I appreciate that as well. And if you want to contact me, as always, you can write me at TravelTalesPodcast at gmail.com. Our website, that's the other big piece of news this year. We redid the website, and it looks fantastic. And I have to thank Gary Ricky for designing it. If you haven't been, please go to TravelTalesPodcast.com and check it out. And while you're there, why don't you click on our links for Instagram, for Twitter, for Facebook, for Stitcher Radio. We have all those things if you want to find us there. And, of course, iTunes. And if you're going to go on iTunes, why not give us a good rating? Helps people find the show, boosts our presence, makes us big shots on iTunes, and that's always a cool thing. So that was the year in a nutshell, and I want to thank everybody who's been along for the ride. If you've been a regular listener, I really appreciate it. Send me a note. Tell me what we could be doing differently. Tell me what you like about the show. Heck, even tell me what you don't like about the show. I always like feedback. 
So let's get on to this episode right now. Um, my guest is Lauren Mark, formerly Lauren Brock. Um, I have been trying to get her on the show for years, and you'll hear our backstory and our history together early on in the interview, but uh, it was really, really great of her to come by and sit down and do the show. And I hope you enjoy it because she's been a lot of places and she loves to travel and we all share that in common, don't we? All right. So that's it. Everybody have a great, safe holiday season. Have an awesome 2014. I can't believe that's the number of the year 2014. Who thought we'd live this long? I'm already starting to plan some awesome, awesome trips and I'm really looking forward to traveling in the new year. So enjoy my interview with Lauren Mark. Have a great new year, and be safe out there on the road, will you? Welcome to the Travel Tales Podcast. I'm here with Lauren Mark, lawyer, adventurer. What else? What did I forget? Anything else? Marathoner? Mountain climber. Half marathoner. Half marathoner. <laughs> no marathon yet. I keep trying. I keep entering all the lotteries for all the big marathons and no one's let me in yet. Background on you, a California native, and how we met is through a friend of mine. I think I was stalking you on the internet many years ago. And uh, we dated for a while, so everybody should know. That's and right. uh, we didn't, we, and that ended because, you know, I'm, I'm an emotional child. But that's a whole other story. But you are happily married. Happily married. Congratulations this that's year. Right. Lauren Mark now. Lauren Mark. It's almost the same. So. Are you now? That's the hard decision. I mean, do you keep? Do you do the two name thing? Are you doing Brock Mark or? Nope. The double K sound didn't appeal to me. Okay. So yeah. we just switched. Yeah. Just made the switch. I went to Lauren Mark. Seems like a pain in the ass. Is it? Do you have it's to change everything. It's a little bit everything? of a pain. You have to change everything. All your passports, IDs, bank accounts, credit oh. cards, tra- frequent flyer miles. Your passport never too, ending. right? Never ending. Yeah, passport oh. too. Actually, with a passport, um, it's the one thing that I've kept in Lauren Brock because once you change the passport, everything else has to match. And for a while, I had my driver's license as Lauren Mark. I had to change that immediately. But the passport, there's no period in time by which you must change it. So since all my other accounts were still under Lauren Brock um, until recently, I didn't want to have all my credit cards and frequent flyer miles mismatched to the name on my travel document because you have to have everything match up in order to get your frequent flyer miles and get on the plane. So until I could kind of time it up to match everything perfectly. I just left it all under Lauren Brock and now no, I'm making the switch. Right. But now we know that uh, by the much as we travel, that a lot of TSA agents are idiots. So if they don't <laughs> see like the exact name on something, you're going to get a hassle, aren't you? Absolutely. I was actually really paranoid. I was traveling and uh, making all my travel plans under Lauren Brock and then pretty much making sure I always had my passport with me, even if I was just flying to San Francisco. Well, of course, finally, one time in the last six months, I got to the airport, realized I didn't have my passport. I panicked, oh. thinking they're not going to let me through. Um, but luckily, I kept my driver's license um, with the hole punched through it with my old name. And all I needed to show that the happy TSA agents was my former driver's license with the hole punched through it and my current driver's license with a new name and it looked like basically the same picture so they were like oh no problem go on get on the plane all that worry for nothing oh, i don't trust it get, does it make <laughs> you feel any safer i mean i think so much of it is just like window dressing you know there, it's just you know with, with this guy that you know came in and just shot up everything mm-hmm. it's it, it's to give you the illusion yeah that we're safe false sense of security yes and there's no consistency at any airport absolutely not <laughs> like you'll carry one thing like liquids 
mm-hmm. through one airport and then they'll stop you at another airport and no you have like no idea. iPads don't have to come out in some places, but overseas they do have to come out. Right. How many countries would you say you've been to? Ooh, I think my number is just around it's somewhere between thirty five and forty now. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty good. It's pretty good. It is pretty good. Like matches my age right now. I'm pretty comfortable with that. <laughs> Wait a minute. You're 29, though. That's right. Oh, That's right. God, Come I on. Forgot. Come Jeez. on. This is radio. Not enough coffee yet today. How it's can not I really, forget that? <laughs> not really radio. Fake radio, let's call it. Um, you were actually uh, instrumental in like um, showing me another way to travel because until then, until I had met you, I hadn't really done a uh, tour, mm-hmm. like a, a group tour. Yep. And you were the one that told me about Intrepid. That's right. Okay, so when was your first experience with the group? And when, well, let's go way back. Way back. When did you leave the country for the first time? I think I left the country technically for the first time um, in college to go to uh, Cabo or to go to Cabo San Lucas, you know, for a long weekend with the girlfriends, but discounting Mexico. Yeah, come on, you're a California native. I don't count Mexico. The first time that I really left the country um, on a big trip was actually when I was 18. I went on a two week trip um, to Europe with some high school classmates as a graduation gift. That's a nice gift. We were actually supposed to go to Spain, um, but we found out a week and a half uh, prior to departing that the secretary of the parent who was in charge of booking the trip never actually booked the trip. Um, And so there was a bit of a panic and (laughs) the Spanish class could no longer go to Spain. Oh. (laughs) Ah, so sad. So they found another (laughs) trip to put all of us poor seniors on and um, we ended up going to London, Paris, Rome, you know, kind of all around in a big loop for two weeks, which was probably a better, broader experience at that age for my first trip than just going in depth in one country. But you never went anywhere, you never even got to Spain on that whole trip, the no, Spanish class? we didn't go to Spain on the whole class, <laughs> no, the whole trip. Spanish class, we didn't get to speak a word of Spanish. What did it, what, when you look back on that, your first trip to Europe at a young age, what do you remember that, did it change something in you? Did, oh, did yeah. it open your eyes on a... Um, I mean, it was my first time being away from home um, and being able to drink freely. So that was certainly an experience. (laughs) Freely? Define freely. I'm sure you had a couple. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, drink freely without adult supervision and with, um, you know, without any sort of real real life consequences. You feel like an adult for the first time. You can walk into a restaurant or a bar and order something. That's Mm -hmm. a big deal. We used to have to go to Wisconsin. Yeah. In Illinois. It was like, well, I remember the first time I went there, I was in high school and we Mm -hmm. ordered like a round of beers mm-hmm. at a at a place where we were still in high school. Yeah. And for us that was just like this is the coolest thing ever. And in some ways it makes you feel more mature, I think yeah, than I feel actually like a grown up. Than than secretly buying booze at the at the liquor store and right. then like guzzling it, you know, you sort of drink more <laughs> in moderation when you're kind of acting like an adult at a restaurant, you know, or in a bar. <laughs> yeah, but no, I mean that was kind of the the first um drinking certainly was one part of it, but obviously it was just seeing all the stuff I had read about only in books at that point. You know, I was an avid reader as a kid. And, and so it was sort of uh, putting to life all the things that had previously just been in my imagination, which was great. You know, it was, it's addicting for me. Mm-hmm. So. so from that trip, did anything happen there that uh, you remember dis- distinctly in your, in your <laughs> mind that stands out? Uh, I remember we had two very greasy Italian hosts, um, <laughs> our tour operator and our bus driver, who both made multiple attempts to um, mm-hmm. m- come to the, the hotel rooms of the ladies on the trip at various points in the evening. Creepy. So, yeah, creepy. Hot 18-year-old girls Italians. from U.S. Yeah. Sure. Those were probably the moments that stood out most. And then, you know, some fun moments of we're on a Globus-type tour with about 30 people on that one. So it was about the 20 of us from our high school plus 10 other random strangers and we were literally on one of those big bus package tours so yeah we're in a hotel with 
30 of us and you know every dinner and meal is organized and so you pretty much would take over a restaurant right um, and you know I have good memories of all of us um, imbibing and, and dancing <laughs> loudly at a lot of restaurants during the trip which was you know a good memory because it's not that often like you said that you travel with a large group of people and it, it does in some ways it's good and in some ways it's bad have you kept in contact with anybody from that trip yeah, I mean, some people from high school um, were people that I grew up with, so I'm still in touch via Facebook. And you know. But it's amazing that that was like pre-internet and pre-internet. stuff. So it's like I, the trips that I made before that mm-hmm. were, I mean, it was so hard to stay in touch with anybody. We, I remember my first time I went to New Zealand, and there was like, uh, that, I was on a tour in that one. I guess that was my first tour experience. Mm-hmm. But... We had to send out a, like a page, we, <laughs> like put our addresses <laughs> down and phone numbers and try to like mail stuff to people and postcards. I mean, yeah. now you don't even one click of a button. That's right. Send me your info. Well, I certainly didn't keep with any locals I met on that trip. I mean, if you ask <laughs> yeah. that question, I, I, nobody I met, you know, in the trip, that trip, did we stay in touch with. Even in college, really, um, you know, the people that I met overseas while traveling during college only a few people um, did I stay in touch with briefly afterward, and even those contacts pretty much you know, went by the wayside for the most part. Where did you go during college? And people should know you went to Stanford, the very prestigious Stanford <laughs> University. She's very smart, very ladies and gentlemen. Very necessary to know. Very smart, ladies and gentlemen. In college, I, I think my first um, college travel trip was I, I spent a semester or a quarter at Stanford overseas in Paris, um, living with a family in Paris. My uh, good friend from college went overseas with me. So the two of us lived together with a family in Paris. And um, we spent about two weeks beforehand traveling around Europe, you know, doing the hostel thing. So that was my first kind of alternate experience of Europe, traveling alone with just one friend versus being on a big bus where it's pre-organized. On this trip, we pretty much spent two weeks doing anything, you know, that we organized for ourselves, but that was the limit. Right. That, so that was like your rail pass, the Eurail whole deal? Your rail pass, exactly. Right. Yeah. What were the standouts from there that you remember? Oh, gosh. Um, what are the, what's that coastal area of Italy? The, uh, oh, the, Cinque, Cinque Terre? Cinque Terre, yeah. yeah. Cinque Terre was probably one of the first highlights. We started off in Paris, took an overnight train down to um, the coast, and we stayed with a friend, uh, the parents of a friend from college at his parents' house, um, you know, it, basically in the outskirts of Nice and the Côte d'Azur. And it was absolutely stunning. You know, we were treated like royalty at the parents' <laughs> home. And we didn't really want to leave at that point. We're like, God, we got to have fresh, you know, chocolate croissants every morning and home-baked food. But they're like, no, you got to carry on. So we took off on the train. And it was like our first kind of attempt at using the Eurail pass and getting over to Italy. And we got off at Cinque Terre and, and ended up in the dirtiest hostel, I think, that I've ever stayed in of any trip. But it's stand. It and that's out. saying a lot, yeah. Because I've yeah, I've seen some horrible ones. It, it stood out really for the simple meal that we had there. Um, we you know we wandered into a pizzeria. We bought a bottle of wine, of course. Um, <laughs> yeah. Wandered into a pizzeria and tried to order pizza, and what we ended up with was something that we did not order, but it was most delicious kind of Italian rustic food that I'd ever had in my life at that point. And we sat literally kind of outside in a square like next door to a fountain on the ground having a bottle of wine and this big piece of focaccia bread with roasted tomatoes and garlic and it, it was absolutely you know heavenly in that moment where you know you couldn't have been happier um <laughs> despite the dirty you know nasty hostel we had to sleep in that night <laughs> but i just remember thinking that we were really off the grid there you know right. for all intensive purposes um for the f- that was the first time i really went somewhere that wasn't although it was on the tourist radar it wasn't at that point someplace everyone had been uh, and it was a little harder to get to so 
that was probably the most memorable uh, part of that trip. Any scary occurrences aside from the creepy Italian guys uh, hitting on you? <laughs> on that trip, I think we um, we actually we ended up uh, meeting up with another couple of friends and going to Prague. Oh, okay. uh, for a couple of nights, and we did the. Uh, we saw that many of the locals were not actually buying and paying for passes for the public transportation. So we felt like we were being, you know, duped into being uh, the get the tourists kind of thing, to like pay, just yeah. get the tourists to pay for tickets. So we finally opted not to get tickets. And of course, at that point in time, the the ticket police came on the train and caught us without tickets. And so I was really paranoid because, you know, at that point, the Czech Republic wasn't really all that modern. And I had no idea, you know, sort of what happened to tourists who violated the law in another country. I don't even violate the law in my (laughs) own country. Former uh, Eastern Bloc nation. Right. I'm kind of a rule follower generally. So, you know, I I didn't. You're a lawyer. You obey the law. And I was a little, I was definitely a little worried when we got stopped by the police and did not have our tickets. But, um, uh, did you pull the, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm a tourist that doesn't know. know anything. Yeah. yeah. We did pull a little bit of that. And the guys we were with <laughs> gave them an extra, you know, bit of money. I'm sure that oh, helped dissuade them from, sure. Yeah, you know, we paid the penalty fee or whatever they said was the penalty fee and they let us go on our way. <laughs> so that was college mm-hmm. later on. So you, you started to work. Mm-hmm. I always love the fact that you made time to travel, and even if you had no one to go with, you went on your own. Go anyway. Yeah. So I'm the same way. You, I think when we met, you had just come back from Africa, maybe? That's right. Uh, I think Africa tri- was the trip I took right before I started practicing law. It was between law school and, and starting work. So. Right. That was your graduation law school present to yourself? Exactly. How, and, what countries? Uh, gosh, we went all over. Um, I did like a, it was a six week trip. So it was wow. the longest vacation I really have ever taken um, as a vacation, you know, other than the study abroad, which you're doing as school and or work. So I don't really count those. But pure vacation, six weeks is the longest I've gone. And the only reason I could afford it was because it was a camping trip. I mean, basically, we went overland from starting in, um, in Kenya around Nairobi. Uh, we went out to the Maasai Mara, to the Serengeti, and then traveled from Kenya all the way down to South Africa by land. So we hit a lot of countries in between, including Tanzania. We went to Zanzibar, Malawi, Zambia, Zimbabwe, Namibia, Botswana. Wow. There was lots to see. That was huge. So th- was that Intrepid? Was that all Intrepid? That was actually not Intrepid. Um, at the time, Intrepid had not yet expanded into Africa. So oh, okay. I uh, investigated other uh, trips, and I wanted to do the overland truck camping style. And there were, at that point, a few companies who did it. So I just read all the reviews of the travelers and then price compared. And, and ultimately, the company that was nearly the cheapest had great reviews. So I just said, oh, hope, give it a risk, you know, and they were great. When you say camping... Now, describe what kind of camp are we talking about? There's, there's a lot of different kinds of camping. This was full-on camping. How roughing it are we talking? We're talking, uh, we pitched our own tents every night, and if we were staying someplace for multiple nights, we didn't have to then unpitch the tent in the morning, but literally pitch the tent on the ground, and oh. you know, you blow up your thermorest and get in your sleeping bag. And I, I kind of was ill-prepared, because I just, in my mind, Africa's hot, right? Right. So I didn't expect how cold it would get in the nighttime um, in a lot of the places where we were. And I ended up having to buy some blankets um, at the Masai Mara camp where we stopped. <laughs> so I'm the proud owner of a few very Kenyan, African-looking blankets that mm-hmm. I had to pack along with me, because I bought this very lightweight summer sleeping bag to take to Africa, and then was freezing <laughs> as soon as I got on the trip and spent one night in it. So, so give me the logistics about going through Africa. I mean, was this more of like, was this trains, buses? 
It was all oh. in a big truck. So these overland a, a, truck companies. A, a truck? It's a modified it's kinda like a modified school bus. Okay. <laughs> it's basically like a it is it looks sort of like a school bus, um, raised up and it's on big old tires so that it can kinda go off road if need be on dirt roads. Um, and then underneath all the seating is a whole kind of storage compartment that wraps all the way around. So all your tents and all the cooking gear gets shoved in under the truck. So all the passengers ride in the in the school bus part, if you will. And then the driver and the leader of your trip and the cook who comes with you and travels all sit up front in the front of the truck. It's almost like a semi. I mean, it's a big truck. It's a big vehicle. Well, how many people were in your group? There, I mean, the group size started out at like two trucks worth. So there were almost 30 of us traveling together at the beginning. But because it's people six weeks, out. people drop out at various points. Some people <laughs> they are only They're going, eaten, yeah. by, eaten by lions? <laughs> Getting malaria. You know? <laughs> well, that's the other thing. Do you get sick? <laughs> I did not get sick in Africa, okay. yeah, luckily. Not even with the food? No, never. Wow. Yeah. That's, a lot of people do. I thought Africa was really clean. Like, I mean, also, I think because we were self-contained cooking, that probably has something to do with it. Okay. You know, we didn't eat in that many restaurants. We mostly ate the food that we were cooking at the campsites every day. You know, breakfast was toast and eggs cooked over the fire. And mm-hmm. um, we did lunch like sandwiches. You know, it's just like deli meats and, and cheeses and bread. And then dinner, we always had something fresh cooked every night, but almost always cooked out on, you know, at the campsite. We had a few dinners at restaurants, but that was it. Any craziness, any, any days that you just were like, what did I get myself into? Well, the, the, the packing and unpacking of the tent gets really old. Um, <laughs> luckily, I shared my tent with a really nice Danish girl, um, and everyone on the trip was really fun. I mean, it was, there were far more fun memories from the trip than, than unfun ones. Uh, I, I mean, I think the scariest part of the trip for me was uh, when I, I nearly drowned in the Zambezi r- River um, I'd done, we decided to all do kind of spending a couple of days in the Zimbabwe-Zambia border around Victoria Falls. There's all kinds of adventure activities you can do. And we went river rafting. Um, and the, the, at the base of Victoria Falls, the, the rapids that run from the base of the falls down for a few miles past of the river are like all class fives. It's one of the most intense river rafting areas in the world. And I sort of walked into it a little bit blindly. I didn't really do that much research. And we all got in the boat and... Um, I'd been river rafting before and really enjoyed it, but I had never done anything the level of, you know, class five rapids on a massive river like the Zambezi. Our boat at the most intense rapid flipped and everyone on the boat went in the water, including the guides. And they have safety kayakers, but uh, I was in the water being flung through the rapids for a good, you know, 60 seconds to two minutes before a safety kayaker reached me. And it was the longest two minutes of my life. Wow. I mean, I thought I might drown. <laughs> did you hit any rocks? I did. I got a huge bruise on one of my arms. Oh, I mean, we were all wearing helmets and life vests, but it was the scariest thing that had ever happened to me at that point traveling. Oh and when God. I got back in the boat, I was done. I was like, I can't even go the rest of the way. I was just like, I'm, I'm too nervous to have that happen again. I'm just having that gut feeling of that was enough for me. Today, yeah. You know, like that was a little too close for comfort. Is there so. anything in the water, like hippos and stuff? <laughs> they didn't tell us, but I found out afterward that there are certainly aiming crocodiles. If you've seen any of the National Geographic movies yeah, in the last few. couple of years, you find out there are plenty of huge crocodiles <laughs> that like not only live in the rivers, but in the rapids and like swim up the rapids. But, you know, I guess not enough live in that particular area, maybe because it's so close to the big falls that um, it's not something, you know, there's loads of tourist operators running guides on that spot. So I'm assuming that it's a pretty safe spot generally. But Okay, now Africa is my next, I think I want to, this next year I want to get back there because I've only been to South Africa. Mm-hmm. But I really want to go to Tanzania and Kenya. And I mean, if, if I'm going to narrow it down, mm-hmm. 
to a few weeks because I know you just went back and did yep. Kilimanjaro. Yeah. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. <laughs> so am I on the right track? Do I want to go? Do I want to stay around that area? If I, did you go to the Ngoro Ngoro crater? crater? Yes, I did. Okay. Um, and that's the place I've been twice now. So because I went back on the second trip. I definitely would do that. I mean, if you can do Kilimanjaro, do it. We'll talk about that, I'm sure, in a minute. But um, I my, definitely the beginning of the trip um, going to the Serengeti, through the Serengeti, the first time I saw cheetahs and giraffes and lions was really spectacular. I thought the Serengeti was amazing. Um, I think we were there near the end of the wildebeest migration, which is also really cool. Ooh. If you can time it during that, it's pretty awesome to what see. What time of year is that? I mean, I think it's around the August, September, October window. Uh, I have to double check, but that was, I think, around the time that I was there. And um, and going to the Masai Mara, we visited a village and went inside of the local Masai Mara huts. Some of it may be, you know, a little bit staged by the tourist company, but for the most part, I gave these places, you know, decent credit. They weren't trying to sell us anything. You know, they really told us not to buy souvenirs and things from the locals um, at that location. They said, you know, this we don't want to generate this as being a trip where they see it as an opportunity to get money off of yeah. the travelers. We just want it to be that they're sharing their culture with you. So I found that was really great. Um, the the animals were certainly great in that area. Tanzania itself, aside from going to the Ngorogoro crater uh, and going, you know, to Kilimanjaro, did there I don't remember any particular wildlife or parks from Tanzania particularly that were great. Uh, but going to Zanzibar is a must do. Yeah, that's what that, that's what I heard on the list. That's yeah. on the list. Yeah. It's just it's like beautiful beaches, right? Mm-hmm. Beautiful beaches and the culture is just so cool. You definitely feel that Arab influence, um, mm-hmm. the, you know, the Middle Eastern vibe, and it's definitely more, um, you know, Orient of the more feeling of the Orient. Okay, Kilimanjaro. 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 Let's talk about it because I really want to do this, and you just did it last year. Yeah. Well, just over a year ago now. Wow. Yeah. It was, I think it was October of 2012. Because this, so, yeah. this is what I've heard. It's not like. Uh, super technically hard but the altitude messes with people yeah the altitude is tough and i mean i'd say the altitude wasn't harder than everest base camp which i've also done we'll talk about that later but the (laughs) the hard part really was the the midnight um summit and how much altitude you gain in the short period of time at the end Um, started from the beginning and how what elevation you start at and how long does it take to get up there how long was your trek the trek for Kilimanjaro, I think, is about a week. Um, it's it's not that long. It's much shorter than, let's say, Everest Base Camp. Um, but you, you start. We started um, at, at one of the gates, and I'm trying to remember the Marangu Gate. I think is the gate we started at. And they drive you up to the park entrance. Um, the first day, you're pretty much walking through the tropics, like in the jungle. And it's really not that uphill. We were done with our hike for the day in like two and a half, three hours. Um, so I felt that the first day was very easy. The second day, uh, you climb from the night one spot up to the night two hut. And again, it's it's long and slow. They really pace you if you have a good guide. The whole African thing is pole pole, which just means slowly, slowly. <laughs> So they literally take it seriously. Um, you know, the guide would literally stop us and tell us to go slower. Even if we were feeling fine and clipping along at a good pace, we'd just say, slow down, you know. Okay. Right. <laughs> so it's a little different, um, you know, feeling you're just walking and walking. And it's, it's you're getting a workout. But it's there weren't really sections of really steep climbing at all um, for the first two and a half days. So on day three, you wake up and, you know, it's, eight in the morning when you get started, you get to the third hut about two o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, and then you, you're going to summit starting at midnight that night. So you end up 
being awake for a really long time unless you're good at sleeping at altitude, which I'm not. <laughs> so we basically get to the place around 2 o'clock. They gave us a late lunch, and then they told us to effectively go to sleep. Um, as soon as we got assigned to our bunks, they said, just try and sleep now and we'll wake you up at 11 o'clock for some breakfast and you'll get dressed and then we'll leave and start our summit bid. Uh, and so we all kind of got in bed around three 30, I'd say after lunch and, and tried to close our eyes, but it resulted in basically five hours of just laying in your sleeping bag, staring at the top of the bunk or the ceiling. Right, right. Uh, you know, a, I wasn't tired at all and B, you know, the light is shining through the room and, and, and with altitude, it's just hard to relax your body, your heart's kind of beating a little faster than normal. So, um, that was, Plus a, you're excited, you're excited. So at midnight they wake you up or just stir you in my case, because I had never <laughs> slept. And then uh, at midnight you set off up the very, very steep part of the hill. Um, and, and that's when it really gets tough. Uh, I mean, basically going from walking from midnight, it took us seven hours to to reach the summit, uh, to you know, six and a half to get over the lip of the first rim, and then uh, another hour to walk to the actual summit from there. So it was seven and a half hours about to get to the top, which at that point, you know, by 7.30 the next morning, I've been up for pretty much 24 hours straight because I never really slept in the evening leading up to it. And then uh, it's about two and a half, three, another three hours to get back down. So we, we returned to the um, place where we had stopped the previous day around 10, 30, 11. Quick bite to eat just to put some calories back in your body. And then we only get an hour to sleep because the next group of people are coming in on their hike oh. and you have to vacate all the beds um, by midday. So we, we got an hour to sleep, um, you know, on this 24-hour window of no sleep, and, and then I have to walk another three hours back down the hill to the night two oh. camp. So it's just exhausting. It's more exhausting. Like your body, you know, it's like doing anything. I guess those people that do those 24-hour marathons are people that do those long, yeah, long yeah. runs where you run through the night. Probably a similar experience. I had never done anything like it before. How cold is it up in the top? And like, how crowded is is it? Because I heard it's like, it's, I mean, it's a big touristy thing mm -hmm. to do. I mean, when you say another group is coming up, how big was your group? And, and like, I mean, does it get like crowded up there? Because I heard like in Everest, it gets too crowded up at, at the top. Yeah. Well, I think for Kilimanjaro, they, the way we did, we did the Marangu route, which is the hut route. And so it's varies depending on which route you do. The, the huts have a finite number of beds in them, um, yeah. which is why they have a capacity. And so there's only a maximum number of people that can stay at each camp each night. Okay. And I would say that there are probably, uh, you know, a hundred to 200 beds in all the huts at each oh, campsite. They're that big. Yeah. They're, the huts are smaller. It's more like a lot of little huts that each hut okay. holds maybe seven or eight people, uh, four or four to eight people. But then there's probably 10 to 12 huts at each campsite location. So other routes, people camp, they camp set up their own camps. Mm -hmm. So you didn't want to do that. No, I learned from the Everest <laughs> experience that the, okay. not personally, but we saw other groups, um, suffering in the tent yeah. situation. I think I would have gone with what you the did. The cabin is a slightly more comfortable version or a slightly more comfortable way to yeah. go. And are, there, actually, are there still snows at Kilimanjaro? There are a few snows. Um, there's a glacier on top. It's rapidly melting, though, I tell you. I know. It's it so was sad. Just even seeing photos that have been taken, aerial photos of Kilimanjaro from even 10 years ago. When I got up there, I mean, we, we walked on dirt. We know, I, you know, going to the summit, I never walked on snow once. So, really? Mm-mm. Oh, that's that's scary. To get to to get to the peak, you do not have to cross snow. I mean, at the time of year that I went, what what time of year was that? Because I heard there's a better time to go. It was October when I went, which was great. The okay. weather was really good. 
Wow. There is a glacier up there that you can see, but it, it was, um, you know, down the slope from from where we were walking, and there was certainly no snow to walk across to get to the top. What do the locals say about it now? I mean, are they? I mean, I'm sure they've seen just disappeared the snow. Yeah, you know, it's a good question. I I didn't really. None of the locals raised um, much vocal concern about it, but that I, you know, I really wasn't aware. This trip was really different in the sense of the, the locals. We didn't have as much interaction with them as we did on the Everest trip. Um, I found that a lot of the guides for uh, for Kilimanjaro didn't speak very good English. Even our main guide, they really are more like technical hiking guides than like a guide to talk to you about the region yeah. and tell you about the history of the mountain and tell you anything. So for f- those five days, we really kind of were on our own, really. There's a lot of pule, pule. A lot of pole pole. <laughs> and certainly our guide spoke enough English. He was more, his focus is really to make sure your health and welfare is okay, that you're getting right. enough food, that everyone doesn't have altitude sickness. But his function isn't really to... Um, explain a lot about the culture or the history. I know he's knowledgeable because every time I actually asked him a pointed question about the flora or the fauna or anything, he he knew the answer. But he just wasn't really um, a free-flowing source of information. What's the elevation at the top? Uh, Just over 19,000 feet. Okay. Okay. So 19,000. And how did you train at all? I mean, did you do the mountains around here just to practice? Yeah, I did some training. At the time, I was living in San Francisco. um, So I I did a couple of the higher peaks that were in that area. I'm mostly just trying to do as much hiking or walking as possible, really. There isn't a whole lot of 10,000 foot peaks or even, you know, 5,000 foot peaks around the Bay Area. Uh, So the most you can do is go for a long day hike, whatever elevation you can get and just practice going uphill. (laughs) How did the other people on the trip handle the uh, altitude? Did anybody drop out? No, actually, our, our our micro group, you, would, you know, I would say within um, all the people that were summiting in the same day that we were, uh, our micro group of seven of us, nobody got sick. Um, there were a couple that live in Denver, um, or sorry, Colorado Springs, I think. So they live at altitude. I mean, they live at about 9,000 feet. <laughs> so for that, they were like the, yeah. like they were off. I mean, you know, they were, altitude was nothing for them. They were both really fit and they were both really young and they were just oh, like, okay. you know, up I hate the hill. Them. I hate them already. I, you know. Um, and then I think I, I think I was the oldest person on the trip. Um, yeah. At 29? At, at 29. Oh right? my God. Yeah. Uh, and then there was an Irish kid who seemed like he was really um, not drunk. not was drunk. fit for hiking, <laughs> like just very unathletic looking, um, small and skinny. But he did fine. He made it to the top and uh, an Australian girl who did really well. So nobody got sick. That's uh, great. We all made it. I think if people were, you know, uncomfortable, nobody really said anything. It didn't stop anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, but the night that we were up there, you know, uh, a 47 year old guy died. He died? Yeah, a Korean man died. Uh, we found out about it the next morning uh, because the guy, um, apparently, he summited. He made it all the way to the top, and he, he c- collapsed about 100 you know, meters south of the summit. He got up there, and um, we learned all this later through various sources because they brought him down in the middle of the night so as not to... I think stir panic. <laughs> they, <laughs> yeah, you're about to summit. There's a dead guy being brought down. Yeah, with, oh, and they no. try and handle it, you know, obviously with some with care and concern because it's not, you know, this does happen. I, you know, not. Well, often. yeah, you don't want to roll them down the hill. <laughs> no, but I mean, they they always try and find out how the person died because they obviously want to know was it a pre-existing condition? Yeah, exactly. Did the guy, you know, was he not in good health and he shouldn't have been doing this? Was it him pushing his guide? Because some guides can sense that the client is not really doing well and they try and 
get them to go down, but the client mm -hmm. will refuse and say, no, I want to do it. I want to do it. You know? Um, and other times it's the guide pushing the client because the sometimes some of the guides are more motivated by having a high success rate. Right. Right. So they always do an inquiry afterward, of course, to find out as much as possible. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, it was just sad, you know, that we'd been up there and, and thinking about God, you know, what a great moment it was for us. And this like, just awe of the beautiful mountain and felt a sense of accomplishment and, and some poor guy, you know, like collapsed and lost his life. And that was his last thing he ever did. Oh man. Oh yeah. I hope it was something he really wanted to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No kidding. Okay. Well now let's talk about the big mountain. Mm -hmm. So you did, what year did you go to Everest? I went to Everest at Christmas of 2008. Christmas 2008. Okay. So, and this is the base camp. Mm -hmm. So if Kilimanjaro is like a little over 19,000, what, what level is the base camp? Base camp is about 17,500. So it's actually okay. lower than Kilimanjaro summit. But there's a lot more snow. There's a lot more snow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So tell me about that. What kind of training did you have to do beforehand? Really about the same. Um, there wasn't, you know, for going to Everest Base Camp, it, there is some snow that you walk over, but you really just have to wear Gore-Tex boots. They don't require crampons or you don't have to okay. actually climb anything technical no with ropes. an ice axe. No ropes, no okay. ice axe, nothing like no that. No ladder uh, crossings? No, all that occurs after Base Camp. Okay. So if you want to carry on and climb higher than Base Camp, then you have to really know what you're doing. Okay. But was there, there was there a, a lot part of, of you that wanted training. to do that? Not at all. Really? <laughs> no. Even beforehand? Because I read Into Thin Air and that wiped that out yeah, for me. Yeah. It wasn't just the fear factor, but I mean, God, the effort it took to get to base yeah. camp. Um, and then when we got there and standing and looking up. <laughs> You're like, no way. It just seems, it seems unthinkable. I, I mean, I really, I, I don't know. It's hard to explain how the sheer awe of the size of Mount Everest. And I, I've never, you know, at that point I had never climbed to the top of anything, even as high as base camp, um, you know, and to just think about doing what I had just done again for another 10 days and making it, you know, 10 times more dangerous and 10 times worse for your body. I just thought it, there wasn't really anything f for me in it. I, I guess enough people have summited Everest that there's no longer a thing for me of um, wanting to be among that group or somehow make it a goal that to be differentiate myself from other people. Base camp was enough for me. <laughs> so logistics of it, you have to fly where to Kathmandu first, mm -hmm. and then you got to take a little, a little puddle jumper. Little puddle jumper. Now that's got to be this flight alone's got to be scary. Uh, it, it is for many people. I'm one of those weird people who loves flying and and thinks that planes are fascinating and have ultimate trust in the pilot. <laughs> <laughs> so I I would never anticipate that anything bad was going to happen. Um, so where, what's the name of the place you have to fly into? The, it's called Lukla. Lukla. And the airport in Lukla is the most dangerous airport in the world to fly into. Or so I've been told. I think more fatal accidents happen flying into that airport than anywhere else in the world. I didn't know that figure at the time, luckily. So <laughs> yeah. some of this is ignorance and, and, you know, probably for the best. It's just better not to know when you're going somewhere and you've decided to do something, right? right? You don't want to psych yourself out. <laughs> is it just like flying over the mountains and the elevation so high and the air is so thin that you have to drop really quick? And it must be something to do with that. It didn't feel like we were dropping flying into really Aspen quick. is that like yeah. that scary. I thought As I thought Aspen was scarier than flying into this airport because of the bumps and the air currents. We didn't it didn't really seem like it was that bumpy of a flight from memory. But the the thing about this place is the runway is really short and it's uphill on kind of a a steep bank, if you will. So the pilot um, has to time it perfectly, I think, and and you basically put your wheels down right at the edge of the runway, which is at the very edge of a cliff. So if the, if the pilot, you know, comes down too early, you're going into the cliff. And if he comes down too late, you're not going to have enough runway to slow down before you hit the other end of the, the mountain that's in front of you. 
Um, I mean, I have a video of it and it's pretty fun to watch like the, the planes coming and going from there. And there's like three planes usually coming and going at once because they get this really bad fog in Kathmandu. And so the flights often get delayed. The morning we left, we couldn't, we sat all with all the other groups who are trying to be on flights that day, getting to Lukla. Um, you're all going for this one window of time when the fog lifts and it's good weather conditions to fly in and fly back. So there's loads of you in the airport and then they just shoot you one, two, three. They send the planes really quick. How long so is the flight? It's only 30 minutes, maybe. Oh, okay. It's pretty short, maybe even less than 30 minutes. Um, but <laughs> flying in and landing and then watching the planes turn around, they, you know, one, two planes actually like clipped each other at the airport while we were watching. After we got off the plane and landed in, in Lukla, uh, that one plane was turning around and trying to go back out to take off again. And the wings actually touched each other and like a teeny piece of metal fell off. Oh and so God. all of us are going, ah, oh, no. concern. Hello. And, and the plane just they kept going. Oh, to no. and flew away. <laughs> so that's the kind of thing that's a little disconcerting, you know, in Lukla. <laughs> oh God. So you get, you land in Lukla. And what elevation is that? Like 10,000? I think it or was around 10,000, 11,000 feet. Okay. There. Do you start hiking from there, or is there another spot that you start hiking from? You start hiking from there. So okay. So literally... 10,000 to 17,000 something. Yep. Wow. Okay. How, how many days is this? The, the hiking up took about, I think it took about nine days. Okay. It's a long trip. So it, it's wow. because you end up having two acclimatization days. So. Two out of the nine days, you're actually um, sleeping in the same place, and in the morning you just wake up and do you hike up about uh, you know a few hundred feet, and then you come back down and rest the rest of the day. It's just to get your body acclimatized to the altitude. Yeah, it's like a safety stop, scuba mm-hmm. diving. Yeah. Almost. So yeah. okay, so then you're you're doing that, and how how many hours of hiking a day once you really get going? It varied, but it was usually kind of a full day. I say, other than those acclimatization days, we'd usually get up and get going right after breakfast or or early, depending on the day. Um, and we'd usually get to where we were going or try to get to where we were going by three o'clock or so, um, so that you get somewhere before it starts to get dark. You have time to relax and eat. Um, but we'd usually stop somewhere for lunch, like a tea house and. There was a lot of soup and tea consumed on the trip. <laughs> a, because a lot of Nepalese are vegetarian. Um, they don't eat a lot of meat. And B, once you get up above um, kind of the two or three nights out of Lukla, it's just too remote for them to keep a supply of any kind of fresh meat. And they don't really have facilities for freezing, and uh, despite the snow. Yeah. <laughs> they don't have healthy facilities for freezing mm-hmm. and storing things and keeping things fresh. So we just didn't have meat after, you know, night two or three. Now, speaking of that, this was also the place where you had a little... Uh, food issue, right? I had a serious food issue in Nepal. <laughs> okay. So you got food poisoning. I did. Yeah. And I've, I've on the mountain. On the mountain. I've never The worst place to get it. I you know, I've not had food poisoning in in Thailand or India or anything I mean mother other than like an upset stomach which results in maybe an uncomfortable afternoon yeah. uh, or a couple of visits to the toilet more than normal. <laughs> this was like a a real, you know, the first time traveling ever I had been really food sick. Um and I I knew it was food sick and not really altitude sickness because of the symptoms <laughs> if oh, you will yeah but um it, it was really uncomfortable and i said the worst part was getting food sickness at altitude um your your stomach has a really hard time um i how to put it um, getting rid of the excess air and, and gas so it was more oh. just the um the acids that are in your stomach from getting the food poisoning that you can't get out because your body doesn't process things out the same way it just made it uh, like painful I, I you know i got sick but then i just felt really uncomfortable for about three or four days oh. um trying to get kind of all the bad a- 
acids out of my body. So you had to hike while this is going on? Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah. It was a little uncomfortable. Did you bring the group down? Uh, I hope not too much. I did mm-hmm. I did hike at the back, um, you know, for most of the first week. <laughs> hike at the back. Mostly because I needed to, you know, <laughs> not not have anything downwind of me. <laughs> <laughs> and yet you meet your husband on yeah. this whole trip. Yeah. So if he could see you then mm-hmm. and say, that's the gal for me, mm-hmm. the one farting her way up the mountain. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he heard me retelling the story, um, which was kind of a funny thing. I was, I was sort of... <laughs> That's allu- true love, right? I was there. alluding to the to the gas and pain situation and describing <laughs> like in detail to a few women on the trip um at some point halfway through the journey and, and unbeknownst to me he was in the next room and in the walls are so thin he was hearing every word I was saying and I had no idea. And of course at that point I already kinda, you know, had noticed him and liked him and was like, you know, feeling a little something <laughs> happening. So I was I would have been mortified if I had known he was listening to me talk <laughs> about all my bed, bodily functions. Listen to your bowel uh, stories <laughs> yeah. and he's just go that's the gal I'm going to marry one that's day. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so you made it so that lasted a few days. That's awful. Mm-hmm. Oh my god. Yeah, it wasn't fun. I mean well, it was also, a great diet. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, you probably lost weight. You know, but if you, exercise but, all day and don't eat anything and like <laughs> everything else comes out of you. <laughs> yeah, but you need, you're going to get weak, right? Yeah. And dehydrated and everything else. Well, that was the hardest part is like maintaining your energy to get up the mountain um, on l- lessened supplies. Luckily, right. I have a lot of stored stored energy. So <laughs> I did okay. <laughs> so is it steep? I mean, is it really... Yeah, I mean, there were parts of the, the Nepal trip that were much more steep than the lead up. Um, you know, the, the Kilimanjaro final ascent night was the probably one of the steeper harder hikes ever because of the 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 dirt is really it's like loose soil hiking up the cone of kilimanjaro it's kind of like a volcanic sand and rock so it's really loose it's kind of like walking up a giant sand dune almost so you don't get a lot of purchase and every step you feel like you're hardly making any progress mm. um in Kilimanjaro, i mean in everest it was there were a lot of steep rocky sections and we really used our trekking poles for balance a bit more um but and it, you know it's pretty much constant uphill to flat to uphill there wasn't really much up and down or undulating um but it you know parts of it were really challenging i certainly got sweaty and tired mm-hmm. um but you know it was great it was uh, good, beautiful uh, weather pretty much yeah how much uh gear did you have to carry and how much did the did the sherpas carry the the rest yeah luckily the sherpas carried all of our big overnight bags so all the you know the travelers only you have to carry your day pack which pretty much includes you know a couple a gallon or so of water that you're supposed to consume on the mountain every day while you're walking this is the main thing about fighting altitude sickness is consuming loads of water mm-hmm. so you're carrying a ton of water to drink during the course of the day plus whatever snacks you're going to want to snack on during the day plus your extra clothing in case of change of weather you know your sunglasses your camera that kind of personal stuff your personal effects um, so for me, actually, and on the way up, you know, I, because I was sick and I was having trouble just even like doing the walking, the the one of the extra guides actually carried my day pack for me through the worst three days oh. of the hiking. So I was just walking with nothing <laughs> for <laughs> for three days. I was kind of a wimp. So once you get to the what what is at the base camp? I mean, because uh, I think people only do the ascent, the major ascent, like certain times a year, mm-hmm. right? The, there's only like a certain time of year you can go. I think it's around May or something. Right. I think that's right. So we did it 
so nobody's up there. December, there was no one there. Okay, so nobody's up there ready to preparing to go up. Correct. But is there like, uh, I mean, were there huts, garbage, uh, air tanks? There's nothing lying around. Yeah, it's bizarre. There's nothing. I mean, that was kind of um, the most. I don't want to say letdown, but you kind of feel like you're going to get to base camp and there's going to be something there yeah, that you can take club. a that you can take a picture <laughs> with and mark that you were there. You know, right? Um, a sign. The, or clo- the closest thing really is uh, about a, a mile or maybe a half mile before you get to base camp the base camp zone if you will there's a sign that says this way to everest bc and everyone takes a picture with that sign because there's no actual sign once you get to base camp if you're going during the time of year when there's not a real like hiking base camp there with all the people who are summiting um and and partly it's because well we found out you know we got there we're like well well, where is it and they're like you're here you're there we're like well there's nothing here yeah a sign something can somebody bring a sign up yeah and they said it's partly due to regulations like they're not allowed to put anything permanent up there and like every piece of garbage and every piece of anything that's been put there artificially is supposed to come down at the end of every climbing season so for environmental purposes there's not supposed to be a single thing there marking it and also because apparently because of weather conditions and the changing glacier the actual site of where the um, summiting base camp is every year is slightly different so there's not you know no, there's no established buildings. There's no established anything. Oh. They just, whenever the climbing season starts each year, they look at the ice field and determine where the flattest, best spot is for everyone to put all their tents and kind of set up um, the main hiking area, the you know, the base camp, if you will. And and so it changes a little bit. It's a huge ice field. I mean, you get there and it's this big, wide open area with nothing. So <laughs> they, you can see why they would just move it around from year to year to whatever spot is the flattest and has the least crevasses in it. Yeah. So you get there. How long do you stay up there? Only about 30 minutes for some pictures. That's it. That's it. You turn around and go back down to the nearest um, tea, you know, tea okay. hut. You were doing huts the whole way. You weren't camping. Yeah, which I'm thankful for. <laughs> so when you look back on it, like Kilimanjaro, Everest, and I know you went to like Machu Picchu in Peru. Mm-hmm. Did you do the uh, Inca Trail there or did you just take, go to take the train up? You know, I did kind of neither. Um, I did a trip with this company called Mountain Lodges of Peru. That was a very new company at the time I did it. And they actually do a trip that goes on a hike through a high pass in the Andes. And we hiked down to Machu Picchu instead of hiking up to it on the Inca Trail. Yeah. So we touched on, we did end up walking on part of the Inca Trail on our way down. But we came from like 15,000 feet in this area called the Salcantay, which is absolutely stunning and um, walked from a different part of the Andes to Machu Picchu um, coming from a different route. So we didn't, we weren't with any tourists who were on the Inca Trail. So you've done all these places. You've been to every continent. Almost. Except Antar- Antarctica. Antarctica. Yeah, I know. Me too. <laughs> and uh, what's left? I mean, what do you, what do you, when you look at the map and the globe, what do you want to uh, do next? Where do you want to go? Well, clearly Antarctica. Yeah, I know. Me too. <laughs> Uh, I would love to do that. Um, definitely fascinated by the Arctic. Uh, but I think, I mean, really, there's there's just so much still to do. You know, there's plenty of places in all the countries I've been to that I would go back to. I mean, I, I think South America is actually probably one of the more untouched areas for me. I feel like of all the continents, if you will, that I've been to, I've traversed more area and seen more of them than South Africa. I mean, sorry, South America. I've only been to Peru. I haven't been to Brazil or Argentina oh, really? or Chile. So oh, you that's all go. on my to-do list. Venezuela. I mean, Colombia. Yeah, I haven't been there, but... I really want to do all that. Um, Patagonia. So. That's our next one. And really Central America as well. I've only been to Costa Rica, but I haven't been oh, anywhere really? else in Central America. Okay. So, I just got back from Panama. You would like that. 
I keep saying, you Panama. know, before I go do all the Latin American countries, I'm going to really get my Spanish better and I you know, know, better I shape. And too. I need to just stop putting it off and go. Well, now that the World Cup is here and I have some good friends who just moved to Brazil, I'm hoping to make a, a journey out of it. Where in Brazil are they? They're in Sao Paulo. Oh, nice. Yeah. So it's at least a good excuse to get down there and, and make it a jumping off point. Are you going to try to go to the World Cup? Because it's going to be crazy. Oh, if I can, but, you know, I don't yeah. know. We're not... Yeah, we keep trying to say we're going to register for tickets, but I don't even really know the, like the luck of getting tickets to the lottery. It's going to be just how much can you fork over to get tickets, and you know, what do I'm, you want to pay to be there? I know, and I'm a fan, and I really want to go, but then part of me is like it's going to be bizarre. And they're jacking up the rates on everything, and like they're gouging already, like because mm-hmm. there's one domestic airline in Brazil, I think it's Goal Airlines, mm-hmm. and they've already like I just read a story that they're just like charging people a thousand dollars for like a forty five minute domestic flight already yeah. so it's going to be worse Nightmare. yeah yeah but it is a beautiful place well that's the thing you gotta I go think... to rio and buenos aires you'd really love yeah i, I can't wait to go i'm it's our, they're all high on my list um and yeah. if you get down there close to antarctica that's right <laughs> in there and i know you like wine so mm-hmm. patagonia great wine to go. and it's i still haven't been to chile either i really want to do that yeah and they have some great mountains for you to climb that's right it's on the list mm-hmm Okay, so when you look back on all these trips you've taken, how do you think it's changed you as a person and how you look at the world and how you deal with people? Mm. I mean, that's a question that could probably be answered in another hour-long conversation. Well, let's do what you can. But, I mean, I I just think fundamentally it it gives you a better appreciation for the life that you have here and a better appreciation for everyone's culture that's different than your own. It gives you, in a way, a seeing ways to do things really i mean i think it's sort of um you know you you understand other people better and and understand why conflicts exist in the world and and maybe even better how they could be solved um you know you certainly learn how to cook better and different things (laughs) at least in my case uh i've come to appreciate all kinds of different cuisines that i probably never would have if i hadn't traveled and um you know i think just generally kind of understanding people better really what it comes down to but and you've got a chance to you've had a chance to live overseas you lived in england for a while Mm -hmm. what did you miss most of all about america if anything mexican food (laughs) yeah (laughs) (laughs) you can't get a guacamole in england that compares to anything in california i think it's a lack of peppers really it comes down Mm -hmm. to the 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 spicy um poblanos and jalapenos and you know pasillo peppers they just don't have that variety over there you can get jalapenos in a lot of english grocery stores now but the fresh corn tortillas i mean you can get a generic brand that gets shipped over from somewhere but there's not a a a good mexican family that like living and working in england who's making the tortillas the way that they should be made and and making them on site and fresh and you know we go to our grocery store in california what we have like 15 varieties of, of course, different yeah. tortillas you can buy. And well, you saw, you saw grew up here, too, so that you're yeah. kind of spoiled by that. Yeah. In England, you get one variety, and it's vacuum-packed and probably <laughs> shipped and has been, yeah. you know, got a lot of processed stuff in it. It's not the same. What did you like the most about living overseas? I mean, I in England, I just I love the English um, sense of humor and um, kind of properness. I, I love the, the manners and the mannerisms of the English people and the traditions. I think it's fun seeing so many of the traditions of our own country that we get from them um i love the queen <laughs> don't know i mean i don't know if it would make much difference to me to be whether i was living in a monarchical society versus you know right 100 democracy like we have but <laughs> quote unquote <laughs> what would you um if you had to pick a place say to retire to or something is there a country 
that you would want to live in that you've stayed, you've gone to, and you've gone, boy, I could live here for a little while. Uh, there's Other a than few. like the UK. Well, I also lived in Sydney, Australia, for almost a year in college. Um, oh, okay. And so I think, um, my, and my husband spent some time there, and we both really love Australia. And I think if if we could move there next year, we might even try it. But now it's so hard with all the restrictions on getting visas and everything else. Um, I you know I don't know if it's something that we could ever realistically do, but. I think I could probably live pretty happily in Australia. And uh, aside from Australia, I think the other place that I've thought about um, and that we've kind of agreed would be really nice is living in, like, you know, the, the French countryside in Provence or something, you know. Just cycle and hike all the time and mm-hmm. have great food and wine. And, you know, you've got the rest of Europe right around you to do all kinds of cool things. Not that America doesn't have cool things right. to do, but, okay. hey, you know, as, a, as an alternative to the American lifestyle, if you had to pick somewhere out of America to retire to... Those would probably be my top two picks. France or outside of, you know, Sydney or Melbourne somewhere. Wow. Sounds nice. Yeah. Can so, I retire now? Sure. <laughs> you, can, you can always retire. I mean, it's just like, yeah. I'm sure they need lawyers. <laughs> That's right. Retired lawyers. <laughs> We're exporting lawyers. That's one thing America has a lot of. of. We can we can send lawyers. So, I mean, what do you tell Americans who haven't been too many places? What do you tell them to encourage them to travel to get them out more i mean i i, I just don't i don't really i'm not friends with that many people who don't travel because i have a hard time understanding it <laughs> right. doesn't it blow you away i mean but i understand not having the money i understand yeah. i mean there's always a fear of the unknown i think the best thing to say is just go try anything new i i think the exposure to new things has an impact on you that you can't anticipate you know you can never know how much seeing something different or seeing something beautiful will impact you in a way that you never anticipated. And that's the beauty of it is it could be the smallest thing or the biggest thing. You know, you could be totally unimpressed by the Eiffel Tower, but see some, you know, small, um, you know, statue in Paris that changes your life. You know, you just, you don't know until you go and try it, how much it might spin your life in another direction. And I think for me, that's it's certainly uh, been a huge thing as I you know look I met my husband you might even meet in Nepal <laughs> you know I certainly wasn't going because I thought it was a hot singles destination <laughs> um, but you just don't know until you get out there what you might learn or see or try that could totally change you know the course of your life for the better um, I mean I haven't had any vacation where I felt like it changed my life you know for the worse certainly I never had an, a bad travel experience that resulted in me feeling like I did I'm sorry I came there um, so I guess I could say better to spend your money on something that's going to enrich your life than on a, a handbag or something that you may not like anymore in five years, or it's going to fall apart. You know, the memories from travel will never fall apart or get old or expire. And so it's totally worth all the money spent. Thanks for coming. I know I bugged you for so long to, to come <laughs> and, you know, you were very busy getting married and moving around the world and you have your life to live. But I really thank you for coming. Absolutely. Did Anytime. you have fun? I did. It was great. Oh, good. All right. Lauren Mark, <laughs> everybody. 